Our lives are really about relationships. And relationships are such an amazing gift from God. You know, we are, we are blessed through our relationships. Relationship of friends. I mean, some of you are, are here back this weekend and you have renewed acquaintances with people and, and you realize what strong bonds of friendship you have. And it's been glorious to be together. There, there is the, the, the bond of family and the blessing that we have of, of people who are related to us and the fun we have and the joy we have and the support that we get from each other as, as family members. And, and there is the relationship of the church, God's people who are bonded together in Christ. And if you ever had that experience where you're out somewhere, you don't know anyone, and, and you're sitting in an airport or in a restaurant or someplace, and, and you begin a conversation, and you realize that that person is a Christian. There is this automatic bond that takes place just because we are one in Christ. And our, our, we are so blessed in our relationships. But we also know that relationships can be messy and complicated. And we can, and, and as wonderful and as much joy as relationships can bring to us, they are also the greatest source of pain and heartache and struggle. Because the people who are closest to us have the ability to hurt us the most. So friends who turn on us and family members who no longer support us and even in the church, you know, we, we can hurt each other and, and we can get into disagreements and fights. And, and what was supposed to be, what was intended to be a place of nurture becomes anything but. It's the nature of human relationships that they can be as wonderful as we can imagine and they can also be very difficult and messy and complicated. But that's not a new thing. That's not something that started with our generation. That has been going on a long, long time. And we see some of the messiness of relationships in this passage in 1 Samuel 25 that we read a few moments ago. He said the context of this story. A few years earlier, Saul has been anointed king of Israel. But he rejects God. And so God tells Samuel, I want you to go as the prophet, as my prophet to the people. And I want you to choose David and anoint him as king. And, and when, when Saul dies, David's the king. And David lives in the palace for a while until Saul gets jealous and threatens his life. And David then spends the rest of, of Saul's life as king. David spends it running around the wilderness. Trying to stay just a little bit ahead of, call, of Saul and his army. And he gathers around him about 600 men who are just a ragtag group of soldiers. And then we come to this story and David hears that uh, this man, Nabal, has, has, is shearing sheep. And he's a very wealthy man, so he has lots of sheep. And, and the, the, the time of shearing sheep is sort of like the harvest. It's a big event. It's a big gathering. Lots of people come because he has lots of sheep. And there's feasting and, and there's singing and partying and all of this. And David knows there's going to be a lot of food there. And his guys need some food. And so he sends some messengers to, to Nabal and says, Look, when, you're, when your sheep herders were out in the wilderness, we protected them. 
You know, you almost get the feeling David's sort of like one of the guys in a big city, you know, one of the gangs in a big city that's, you know, sort of protection racket. And maybe he is, I don't know. But, but he said, you know, we, we watched over them and now you owe us a little something. And, and Nabal says, why would I give you anything? Who's David? What do I care about David? And he doesn't, it's not, it doesn't mean that he doesn't know who David is. He's just simply speaking of David with contempt. David's like a, like a flea on the back of a dog. Why would I give him what I have? What do I care about David? He's nothing. He doesn't scare me. I'm not giving him anything. And he sends the messengers back. And David is livid. He's furious. He is so angry that he makes this vow. He says, God, if this time tomorrow I haven't wiped out every male that lives in Nabal's camp, then you do the same thing to me and my family. And my man. I mean, that's serious stuff. He is so angry. And he, and he takes off. And as he's on his way, one of the servants says to Abigail, Nabal's wife, we got a problem here. She doesn't know what's happened. He tells her what's happened. And she moves into action immediately. And she gathers as much food as she possibly can. And she takes the servants and heads out. And she meets David. And she gives him all this stuff, asking him to relent. And he does. And David turns around and goes home. And Abigail turns around and goes to her home. And when she gets back, she waits till the next morning. She tells her husband about it. He has a stroke or a heart attack or something. We don't know exactly, but in about 10 days he dies. And David hears about his death. And as his pastor says, he woos Abigail and she becomes his wife. And you get to the end of the story and you almost feel like it ought to add at the very end and they all lived happily ever after. <laughs> Has one of those endings to it. But there's a whole lot more going on here than just living happily ever after. Nabal is a fool. Actually, that's what his name means, fool, which is probably why you don't see a lot of people naming their children Nabal. I mean, did his parents set him up or what, right? You know, he, he is a fool. He's stupid. He, he, you, know, it's, it, you look at him and you think, what were you thinking? This wealthy, wealthy man couldn't give away a little bit. And we, we, we know people in the world who are like that. But Nabal isn't the only fool in this story. David's a fool too. David, David, you remember the beginning verse of this chapter says Samuel died. And a lot of scholars, commentators read that as something that just got interjected. It doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the story. And I couldn't, be, I couldn't disagree more. I think it has a lot to do with the story. Because Samuel is David's mentor. Samuel is the voice of God to David. Samuel is David, in a sense, David's security blanket. As David is traveling all over the countryside, not knowing who he can trust and who he can't, the one person he knows he can rely on is Samuel. And Samuel's dead. And David is wrestling with, who do I turn to? Where's my security? Who do I talk to? Who do I trust? You know, I was relying on Samuel to to sort of be my, you know, to help me out with this. And he's not there. And I guess now I'm going to have to do this myself. People are not sure who I am and what I can do. And without Samuel here, I've got to prove myself. 
And I have a feeling that some of that was underlying David's radically radical emotional outburst when he gets this news about Nabal. He's got to prove himself because he has been, in our language, disrespected. And if you're disrespected, you can't just let that go. You have to do something about it. You don't want people to think you're weak. You don't want people to think that you can just walk all over you. And especially in that culture, you can't let that go. You have to respond or, or you lose face. I mean, we see that now. How many times do we read about uh, a gang shooting or, or any other kind of violence and we hear the back, the back story is, well, they disrespected me. I had to do something about it. But here's the honest truth. We don't have to be shot at and still feel the same way David does. Do people treat us with contempt? People disrespect us? People hurt us. It happens in the church all the time. It happens in our families. It happens in our friendships. And that hurt drives us to behavior that we would never think of before we felt that hurt. And that pain and that feeling of of disrespect and feeling like we have to stand up for ourselves and we can't let people think we're weak drives us to behavior that looks an awful lot like David's. And actually Abigail saves David from from doing something that he was going to have to live with the rest of his life. At least three times in this passage, David or Abigail says, you saved, that we saved, David was saved from shedding unnecessary blood and of avenging with his own hand instead of letting God take care of things. And that would have stayed with him and been on his conscience and been a part of his life from that moment on. And she saved him from it. And we admire David. And, and David is a great leader. But in this, in this story, he's not acting like a great leader. The hero of this story is not David, it's Abigail. It's a woman who in that culture is powerless and vulnerable. She's the hero of the story. She brings about peace to a circumstance that had violence written all over it. And as I read this story, my mind automatically goes back to the Beatitudes. We read a few earlier in the service. And I hear Jesus saying, blessed are the peacemakers. In the, in the uh, Monty Python movie, Life of Brian, you know, it's a spoof about a lot of different things. But there is a scene in there of, of the Sermon on the Mount. And there's a big crowd there. And when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, there's a woman way in the back who says, what did he say? And the guy in front of her says, I think he said, blessed are the cheesemakers. He says, cheesemakers? What's so special about cheesemakers? And her husband says, well, it's not just cheesemakers. It's anyone who would be involved in the dairy manufacturing industry. You know, it's this ludicrous conversation. But here's the truth. To that group of people listening to Jesus on that mountainside... 
blessed are the peacemakers is just as absurd as blessed are the cheesemakers. I mean, these are people who've been waiting centuries for the Messiah to come and to free them from those who are oppressing them and to retaliate against their enemies and to destroy them in every way possible. This is what they've been living for. And, they, and they're beginning to think that Jesus might have some power to do that. His words are powerful. He's casting out demons. He's healing people. He's raising the dead. All these things are going on with the signs of power. And as they gather on that mountain, you can, you can almost feel the energy of this is the guy. He's going to set us free. And what do they hear? Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the peacemakers. It's crazy talk. Excuse me. <coughs> Excuse me. It's ludicrous. And what I find so fascinating about this is that Jesus says the peacemakers are blessed. Because they're called children of God. Peacemaking is the family business. It's what the children of God do. Children of God think like God and talk like God and act like God. And children of God are peacemakers. Now, not everyone who is a peacemaker in the world is necessarily a child of God, but everyone who is a child of God is committed to peacemaking. Jesus is clear about it. Now, when we hear of peacemaking, we, you know, we, we think, well, that, you know, there have to be some boundaries, there have to be some, some limits to that. I mean, after all, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10 that he didn't come to bring peace, but he came to bring a sword. And I always find it fascinating that Jesus has all these things to say about peacemaking. And, but we love to focus on that one short verse about peace and the sword. But I think it's out of context from how we typically think of it. He's talking about family. It's in the context of how your family's going to respond to you. And he says sometimes when, you do, when, you're, when you're living in the spirit of Christ, when, you, when you're following the example of Christ, when, you, when you're doing what Christ wants you to do, you're being merciful and a peacemaker and meek, your family can't understand it and you feel alien, they alienate you. You forgive those who have offended you. Sometimes those who are close to you just simply cannot grasp that. You love people and you care about people who are on the margins of society. Sometimes those who are closest to us look at us as though we're crazy. And there, become, there, and there is a wedge sometimes that's put between us. Not because we are being obnoxious. Not because we're being a troublemaker. Not because we're being foolish. But because sometimes that's just the natural way of living in a world that in many respects has rejected the kingdom of God. And being a peacemaker is about embracing the kingdom of God. The Beatitudes are not just, well, these are some nice things that you ought to think about. This is the revolutionary nature of the kingdom coming into our lives as the people of God. You think about the description of the kingdom that Isaiah gives us. Of a wolf lying down with the lamb. 
and weapons being turned into farming tools and and the desert blooming with flowers. It's radical, countercultural stuff. And peacemakers are are, are a means of bringing about the kingdom of God in heaven on earth. We wrestle with that because we love power. And I have I've come to the conclusion as, I, as you look at the life of Jesus, as you read the scriptures, that peacemakers always operate from a position not of power, but of weakness. Humility. Vulnerability. Abigail doesn't come to David and say, hey, why are you talking to my husband like that? You know, she, doesn't, she doesn't get in David's face. She bows down on the ground and she takes the blame. She wasn't even there. She didn't know anything about it. But she takes the blame upon herself. And you talk about vulnerable. She has no idea how David's going to respond to her. A couple of chapters earlier, Saul is upset because the uh, priest of Nob have helped David. And he goes in and he just wipes out everything, man, woman, and child. She has no idea what this... What this warrior is going to do to her when she bows down before him. But the only way to bring peace is through a spirit of humility and vulnerability and weakness. And it's hard because we love power. We have come to the conclusion that we can bring about peace on earth by legislation and by rights and by, and by engaging in powerful means. And yet Paul tells us that in 2 Corinthians 5 that Jesus reconciles the world to himself through the cross. Through weakness and vulnerability and death and how much more his children. It's a risk to be a peacemaker. You don't know how people are going to respond. You don't know what's going to happen when you step into a situation. And I suspect that for many of us, the peacemaking to which we might be called might not be so much between that person and that person, though sometimes God does call us into those circumstances. But often I think it's between that person and us. That something's not right in our relationship. Something isn't right in the way that we are that, that, that we are relating to this other person. And the question that keeps confronting us and them is who's going to take the first step? Who's going to say, I'm sorry? Who's going to say, forgive me first? Who's going to be vulnerable? God's calling us to be peacemakers who take the first step. Ultimately, peacemaking is an act of trusting God. We don't know how it's going to turn out. People may not respond the way we want them to. People may respond negatively, harshly. But as long as we approach them in humility and a spirit of weakness and in the power of Christ... And in the grace of Christ, the results are up to God. We're just called to be people who do what we can to make peace. 
we're all confronted in the situations in which we find ourselves and the relationships that, that we are a part of. We're always confronted with whether we're going to be troublemakers who act like fools or peacemakers who act like Jesus. Every day we're confronted with that question. Abigail decides to be a peacemaker. And women still have their husbands. And children still have their fathers. And David is saved from shedding innocent blood. Who knows what our acts of peacemaking will do. I want to ask you to take a moment to, to pray, to meditate. And to ask God to reveal into each of our hearts. If there is a person, a circumstance, maybe a group of people. That God may be prompting us to begin thinking about being a peacemaker. Heavenly Father, give us courage, first of all, to want to be peacemakers and to be willing to risk because we trust you and because we know that as your children, it's, it's what we do. Give us grace, Lord. To be committed through your mercy to be peacemakers. And as we sing this song, let us commit ourselves even today, right now, that peacemaking in our circumstances and in this world might begin with us as we surrender to you. Amen.